the cycling podcast powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. Hello and joining you this week from Soyer in the Tramontana Mountains of Mallorca, a location with which one of today's guests has enjoyed a somewhat traumatic relationship, as we'll discover later. And no, I'm not talking about Lionel Bernie's infamous summer bender to Magaluf in the summer of, well, in the summer, I've said that twice, of 1999. My name is Daniel Freeber. I'm the host of this episode of the Cycling Podcast in which we'll bid au revoir, adieu, tot saints, or if we're Patrick Lefebvre, F off to the cobbled classics. We'll reflect <laughs> on one rider's domination of the tour of the Basque Country and we'll ask the guest with the Mallorca PTSD whether a race should ever be named after one of the worst beers in Europe. Let's meet that first heavily aforementioned guest now. He's a familiar voice on the podcast and podcasts in general, including his own. He is also a former veteran of over a decade in the pro peloton, nine grand tours. However, however, and here we come to the first big talking point of the pod. While thinking about today's episode and the fact we'll be hearing from someone who didn't quite make the time cut at the Roubaix Velodrome at the weekend... I couldn't help but notice, Mitch Docker, that of the five times you finished hors délai, that's out of the time limit in your pro career, four of them were at the Challenge Mallorca, within a few kilometres of where I'm sitting. Mitch, what do you have against Mallorca, or what does it have against you? I don't know if I believe that. Is that true? Four times. Um, Occasionally, pro cycling stats, and I will reference them here, they get things wrong. And I'm even surprised that I rode to the end. Why I didn't just pull out? It must have meant something to me to make it, even if I was out of time. I do remember one time that I did ride to the end. Andre Griper won the stage, and I remember riding to the end thinking, I was out of time. Like, how could Griper possibly win this stage? It was so hilly. We went from DR along that coast there, up and down. I got dropped straight away, and I'm thinking, who won this stage? Andre Griper won it. But Mallorca... This is a different story from the one we heard in a previous version, of, in a previous attempt at recording this podcast. Well... <laughs> you had second thoughts. I, I have had many a times in Mallorca, but you just brought something up for me. Mallorca has a lot of memories for me because it's really where I started my time in Europe. I was there doing the Track World Championships in 2007, I believe it was, because 2008, from memory, that was in Manchester, just before the... Uh, the Olympics. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> um, amazing, re- amazing recall for, for dates on the podcast being displayed this week. But <laughs> the funny thing is why I'm laughing so much is because it was a bit of a joke while I was there. I was there to do the Madison, but actually I only rode the scratch race, which anyone who knows, if you go to a world championships and just ride the scratch race, no disrespect to anyone who's doing that at the moment. It's the joke event. I was the joke. I did the scratch race on the first day and I essentially just had a party in Mallorca with Ben Kirsten, who did the um, Omnium in those days, finished on the first day. We got to know the island so well, which actually paid dues to when I went back my first year of my career we landed in Mallorca in January for a training camp. Um, so I really got to know Mallorca really well. Um, interesting race, isn't it? The Challenge Mallorca. Uh, interesting. I mean, it has played host, I think, to some hijinks um, in certain teams 
certain riders in the past. I remember Nicky Terpstra telling me or hearing a story from Nicky Terpstra about his first experience of the Challenge Mallorca. I think he ended up going through the tunnel in Sawyer, which is actually absolutely forbidden, and ending up on the wrong side of the island having to ride back on the motorway, being rescued by a soigneur from the motorway, something along those lines. Um, but yeah, Mallorca. Um, well, most of us have yeah, the th- gone. The thing is with Mallorca is it's like it's... I rem- always remember Mallorca because, like I said, it was the first place that I went to for my first training camp. And as a young Aussie, I went there thinking, you know, we'd done this hard week of training. And then eventually the, the coaches said to us, you know, the trainers, you know, last night, boys, before we fly home tomorrow, go and let your hair down. Go out for a drink. We're all going to go up to the beer kerning because we're staying up in that German part, which I always find funny with Mallorca. There's the the Hamburg the, Hills. Yeah, you got the you got the British part where Lionel's always got his residence down there um, <laughs> in Magaluf, and then you've got you know the Dutch area and you've got the German area. And we went to the, this beer kerning, and I thought, great, let our hairs down. We can have a few beers. You know, I've just come out of the Australian summer. Let's get into it. And we get into this beer kerning, and I saw these people, these older Germans, wal- waltzing around in this this prize t-shirt, you know, beer canning t-shirt. And I was like, how do you get one of them? And I'm, to embellish the story, I think you had to have a few steins. It might have only been one stein, but I think you had to have a few. So I'll just say that. So I got into it, had a few few steins, got my t-shirt. And as I decided to jump up with some local old German to jump on the, you know, dance to the folk music on one of the uh, tables, my teammate, Kenny Van Hummel, pulled my arm down, got me out of there, shuffled me into a cab. I spewed my guts up just before we got into the hotel. He put me in bed and saved my ass in my first weeks with the team. I just thought it was a big piss up, but really it was just a quiet beer. Um, Very hard lesson, but many thanks to Kenny. If he's listening out there, mate, you saved me from what could have been the end of my career. With that, I think, Mitch, without further ado, we should introduce the second guest. Um, So, Lionel Burney. Tell us about that lads weekend in Magaluf in 1999. <laughs> As you both know, really not my cup of tea, that sort of thing. Uh, the summer of 99 was actually the first time I covered the Tour de France. So that I guess that was my kind of working holiday around following the tour for a few days. Uh, but yeah, I'm not really, I mean, I like a, I like a nice beer, but just not. Magaluf, not for me, really. The sunshine, as you know, Daniel, you know, I do go very pink very quickly. Um, I've become a, basically the Malia Rosa after about 20 minutes in the sunshine. So uh, those kind of beach holidays, you know, party boats and stuff, no, not for me. Much happier in the shade with a nice, cool beer. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thank you very much to Super Sapiens, our title sponsors. 
If you'd like to find out all about their system of continuous glucose monitoring, go to supersapiens.com. Now I'm going to pinch an item from Daniel's news roundup here because the Giro di Sicilia has begun and Novo Nordisk are riding. Now all of the riders on the Novo Nordisk team are type 1 diabetics and that means that they have to monitor their glucose levels in real time for their health and they are permitted to use a continuous glucose monitoring system within races unlike all of the other teams. In the lineup in Sicily is friend of the podcast Sam Brand. They are off and running and I learned today that one of their sports directors there is Massimo Podenzana who won a stage of the 1996 Tour de France and apparently if he wasn't a cyclist he would have liked to have been a chef. The Novo Nordic team was founded by Phil Sutherland who also founded Super Sapiens and they've been given a wild card at the Tour of Poland World Tour race which starts at the very end of July. Uh, sticking with the Super Sapiens Sicily theme the Aeolo Cometa team are riding in Sicily as well and they use Super Sapiens technology in their training sessions don't use it in the races of course because it's not permitted but their rider Vincenzo Albanese was second on the opening stage which ran from Marsala which is famous for the wine and it finished in Agrigento and just to link it all back to our guest today Mitch Docker the stage was won by Finn Fisher Black and there was a very memorable episode of Life in the Peloton from 2021 when Finn and his sister Neve also a pro cyclist featured on Life in the Peloton when the the episodes were all hosted on our platform before we had to release you like a butterfly Mitch to fly spread your wings well you've been independent before and now independent again anyway supersapiens.com is the place you need to go to find out all about the super sapiens system chaps let's quickly round up the racing that's happened since we recorded on we recorded on sunday didn't we lionel um on wednesday last wednesday we had both a women's and a men's scale price and they won respectively but i think it's fair to say the best sprinters in the world in this early season that's to say lorena Webus and Jasper Philipson. Men's race was also notable for Mark Cavendish's third place. Some much-needed points for his Astana team, who are currently languishing in the UCI rankings, as we'll maybe touch on later in the episode. Also last week, we had the four-stage Région Pays de la Loire Tour, formerly known as the Circuit de la Sarthe. There were a couple of stage wins there for Brian Coquart, a couple for Uno X riders, and a GC victory for one of my protégés, friend of the podcast, Danish champion Alexander Camp of Fabian Cancellara's Tudor cycling team. Camp winning in France and another Dane, Jonas Vingegaard, pretty much cleaning up in the tour of the Basque Country in Spain, as we'll discuss and reflect on later. Vingegaard won three stages, took the overall title by 1 minute 12 seconds from Mikel Landa and 1 minute... And 29 seconds for, from Jon Izaguirre. Stage wins there for Ethan Hayter, Ida Skelling and Sergio Higuita, as well as Vingegaard's three. I should also mention a very good performance there by sometime podcast diarist James Knox. He was second on the last day and eighth overall. Another good friend of ours, the Motown maestro Larry Warbass, got the last minute call. Um, to do the tour of the Basque Country. You'll remember we recorded with Larry a few weeks ago and he was at altitude expecting to be there for a while, but AG2R had some issues, injuries, illness. And Larry got the call. Um, he was slightly apprehensive, it's fair to say, about that last minute. All expenses paid invitation to the tour of the Basque Country. I can report that he survived. His own words to me this morning was just fine. 
Uh, Larry's Austrian teammate Felix Gall rode very well in the Basque Country and he finished 5th overall, sorry, 10th overall, Felix Gall. Still going in chronological order, we come to the weekend, Paris-Roubaix. We covered both the men's and women's races in Arrive. Lionel was also there. And those races were won by Alison Jackson and Mathieu van der Poel. Much more on the men's race to come. Lionel, I think you've got a footnote on the women's race for us. Yeah, one thing that we didn't discuss in Arrive, Lizzie Banks and I, was the incredible story of Audrey Cordon-Rago, the current French champion. Now, she's had an extraordinary few months because she suffered a stroke before the World Championships last year and then had surgery to correct a cardiac issue. She left Trek Segafredo and was due to join the B&B Hotels team before that collapsed. And so she signed for ZAF Cycling Team, which is a Spanish registered team. And as has been reported widely, the team has not been paying its riders. And Cordon Rago resigned because of the unpaid wages, a situation that the UCI and the Spanish Federation are currently investigating. Now, normally riders can't switch teams this early in the year, but she got a special dispensation to leave before the transfer window opens in June and she signed with Human Powered Health and that was announced two days before Paris-Roubaix meaning that she could start the race for her new team. She finished 35th in a group at 1 minute 45 but at the start in Danan there was a real moment because when she saw her former teammates from the ZAF team there were lots of tears and hugs and obviously she feels enormous sympathy for the plight of her former teammates who are effectively racing for free which is bad enough but when you're about to confront the hell of the north uh, it's really an unacceptable situation and one that you have to hope the UCI will get on top of and ensure that the riders get the money that they were expecting because uh, you know professional sport is not professional if the athletes aren't getting paid. Lionel, Zaf, that's nothing to do with Abdel Kadir Zaf. Is it the Algerian born rider who rode the tour in 1951? I think he might have been, he's widely described as the first African to ride the tour. And there's also, there are all sorts of tour, tour tales, this is coming back to Mitch, um, about him riding the Tour de France and alcohol having led to his demise on one stage or led to great difficulties for him on one stage. No, sounds like it's nothing to do with that. No, I think the I think <laughs> I think it's rather more prosaic the troubles that the team are having. Yes. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Uh, since the weekend, we've also had one relatively significant one-day race, Paris-Camembert, which neither starts in Paris nor finishes in Camembert. It starts in a place called Magnonville and finishes in Livaro-Pédoge. Mitch, ever done Paris-Camembert? I have, actually, um, much to my um, non-delight. Um, <laughs> it was presented to me... On the way to Roubaix, actually, when I was in school, Shimano, I can't remember what year. It must have been my second year, I think. So 2010 and just getting to the crescendo of the classics, getting to Roubaix or almost getting to the start line feels like a success. Obviously, getting to the end of Roubaix is like, it's done. Finally, we're out of these things. And then they go, actually, can you stay on two more days in this beautiful Campanile Hotel and do this race camembert? Um <laughs> This feels like a devious plot that had been devised quite quite some time before the news was broken to you. Yeah, I think they just got a nice little lump sum start money and just said, send the Roubaix boys, you know, all we got to do is start them there. Um, you know, the, the one thing I do love about Paris Camembert, I don't know if it exists anymore, but you do get Camembert cheese I'm talking about. Um, and I love the fact, none, none of the boys wanted it. We travelled home in the camp and I could smell it and I said, who wants this Camembert? You know, like you got a little wheel each. 
So I I scooped it up, took home whatever it was, five, six wheels of camembert. It was pretty smelly, pretty ripe, but it wasn't until the next day I went down to get some shopping in the morning and I was traveling up the stairs to my small apartment and I could smell Perry camembert wafting down the stairwell. And I thought, as I got closer to the door, it was putrid, you know, because I'd slept in there all night. I didn't notice it. It wasn't until I went out of the room and came back it was so ripe. It was the ripest camembert I've ever had. I smelled. I didn't eat it. It was just too strong. Um, so that's my. I, I love that though. Races where you get, you know, something from the region. You know, camembert, or you know, in Italy you get Parma, or you know, wherever it is. I love that old tradition um, of getting something from the race. Well, Lionel, in a few days we've got the race. I pejoratively refers to as the uphill cheese roll that's flesh well on and Prairie Camembert will henceforth be known as the downwind cheese roll I think um, the race was won this year I should say by Valentin Ferron of Total Energy um, last race to catch up on Lionel you mentioned it a few minutes ago the Giro di Sicilia began on Tuesday with the victory in the first stage for Finn Fisher Black of UAE just before we move on to talk about men's Paris-Roubaix in the next part, a couple of listeners, a few listeners have been in touch with sort of corrections corner for things we said in last week's episode or clarifications corner, perhaps. We were talking about races uh, starting in one place and finishing in another place, but giving the option for riders to take alternate routes from start to finish. This came out of our discussion about the 1949 Paris-Roubaix, where the joint winners each took different routes to the finish. And I said, you know, a, a cycling orienteering discipline would be a fantastic addition to the World Tour. Well, a couple of listeners wrote to remind me that this type of cycle racing does exist. The Alley Cat races, which evolved out of the cycle courier or messenger scene, basically race around the city in no particular order, uh, visiting various different points. And the first rider back to the start point is the winner. Thank you very much to Dominic Stobart and Professor John Bowers for reminding me about the Alley Cat racing. And we tried to clear up the myth of Bernard Eno and Paris-Roubaix, didn't we, Daniel? The famous story was that he rode it in 1981, won the race, and then never set foot on the cobblestones of Paris-Roubaix again. Of course, complete nonsense because he finished ninth in 1982. As Francois said, he also rode the Pavé during the Tour de France. But Paul Deacon wrote to say that Eno was also on the start line in 1983. I didn't have my reference books at my fingertips in Ghent last week, but I have checked this out. And yes, Eno was on the start line in 1983, didn't finish. And there is a bit of an interesting story behind that as Paul uh, filled us in. Basically, there was the Tour of the Americas, which was a three-day race, so not covering much of America, held in Richmond, Virginia, and all of the top European teams went over, including Eno. Now, Eno didn't actually ride. He was there in a more ambassadorial role and then apparently flew back on Concorde to take part in Paris-Roubaix on the Sunday, just a few days later, and, well, was grumpy about that and didn't make it much further than the feed zone. He did, though, bounce back to win the the Grand Prix Pino Charami on the Tuesday and Flesh Wallone on the Thursday. So he couldn't have been that grumpy. Now, Lionel, just on the uh, Tour of America, do you remember a story? This is a, a very quick diversion, but do you remember a story about 15 years ago? There was a businessman. I, I want to say he was a, maybe Indian-born. His name was Frank, and he unveiled a plan for what he said was going to be, well, the greatest, the grandest of all grand tours, a tour of America. And it was basically, he'd just taken a big marker pen 
uh, drawn a big line across America and he claimed to have agreements with various cities in, in the States and then he, he even unveiled the list of the stages and there were sort of 400 kilometer stages. <laughs> I do remember you know, that. Sort of yeah, I do remember Philadelphia that. Philadelphia to Boston. And I don't, it feels like we should do, we should maybe track him down. That would be a good podcast series. After, after Mitch Docker and the Mallorca Challenge, maybe our next eight parter should be tour of america that never was. i mean it was it was always felix levitan's dream to have the start in new york wasn't it using concord to get the peloton back to france uh, obviously concord mm. no longer flying which makes it more difficult to overcome the, the the time difference the jet lag and what have you but yeah um i do remember that just before we crack on with the rest of the episode uh, i was in france with tom wally and lizzie banks of course they've made an excellent episode of service course from Paris-Roubaix, that will be out before the weekend. And just a quick plug for the 1101 Cappuccino, our weekly newsletter, which goes out to subscribers by email. You can sign up at thecyclingpodcast.com or you can look at it online or you can download the Substack app and never miss an update from the 1101 Cappuccino. This week's post will have some audio and photos from our trip to Roubaix. And one of the things that blew my mind was that the velodrome in Roubaix the center of the track which used to be grass has been covered over with a very nice astroturf I I was actually looking at that on tv thinking it was so green like the it I didn't think about astroturf I just assumed I actually made the comment watching it wow how nice does the grass look but has it always been astroturf I can't remember now Certainly not. No, uh, I can't actually remember much about last year, but when Sonny Colbrelli won and it was all wet and dank and drizzly, the grass was cutting up a bit in the track centre, so it was definitely grass then. I'm sure I'd have remembered if it had been AstroTurf last year. I think it must have gone down since Dylan Van Bala won. And uh, yeah, it's, it's very nice. You can have a really good game of uh, football on that AstroTurf. I don't so know you're, what else. You're pro, you're pro AstroTurf. Uh, I I I like this 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 kind of five gen this five G version, which is like strands of grass but plastic, and then that to basically if you play football on one, the, they put down a kind of sandy crumb that takes the makes sure that the ball doesn't bounce ridiculously high. But no, I I quite like a nice astroturf. Shoot, uh, shoot at the du peloton, cycling podcast team car, the back of the pack, please. That's Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Give online therapy a try at betterhelp.com slash cycle and get on your way to being the best version of yourself. BetterHelp are offering 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash cycle. Now, perhaps you've had therapy before or you're considering giving it a go for the first time. I've had face-to-face therapy, but I think if I was setting out on this sort of journey from scratch, I would give BetterHelp a go because you can have your therapy sessions when you want, at home, wherever you feel most comfortable because it's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. To start with, you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist. And if it doesn't work out with the first therapist you're matched with, well, you can switch anytime for no additional charge. So really, it's about finding a therapist that works for you. And the whole idea is to talk through difficulties, raise your self-awareness and understanding of the things that perhaps trigger you in stressful situations or 
to work out why you feel a certain way you feel when some of life's headwinds start to affect the way you feel. Certainly that's my experience. Talking to somebody who I don't know without any sense of judgment has been very helpful. So if you want to give therapy a try, give betterhelp.com slash cycle a go. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash cycle. And remember, there's 10% off your first month. Well, chaps, the dust is still settling from Paris Bay, maybe still being wiped from certain riders' eyes and other orifices. Uh, Mitch, Paris Bay was your favourite race, I think I'm right in saying. Um, it's now very much, I guess, in your rear view mirror, a couple of years since you retired at Paris Bay. And just tell us about how you experienced the race um, at the weekend and any red hot, piping hot takes you can give us, Mitch, um, from down under. First and foremost, I absolutely love the format of the women's Roubaix before the men's Roubaix the day before. It just it works so well. I love the women's race this year um, as all three editions. The first experience I got was the very first women's Roubaix. I was sitting in the hotel ready for my last race of my career and I got a chance to absorb the women's race the day before. I, I really love this way that they do this. You know, given the whole day before the race, it it works so well. The women's race was awesome this year. Um, better than the men's race. I don't know. Easily as good. I absolutely love the way it played out. It was. I knew the winner before. I stupidly. I I meant to get up and watch it the next morning. And I, as we all do, we stupidly look at our phone and something popped up. And I didn't want to believe it. Um, no respect, no disrespect to Alison. But I was like, oh, did she win it? I don't know. Like, I didn't know she was at that sort of level. So I sort of, in my mind, I saw her in the breakaway. And I'm like, and then she started atta- like pushing the pace with 15K to go. And I was like, oh, maybe she just had a pretty good ride. Because it just didn't look like the, she could win it the way she was riding 15K to go. Really just like the one who was driving the pace and all the others were sort of doing a turn whenever they could. And I absolutely loved the women's Roubaix. It was just such a great race. And it set me up for the men's then. I was ready. I was I was already ready, but it just got the juices flowing. And I did an all-nighter watching. Well, it actually wasn't an all-nighter. They went so fast that I got to bed pretty, pretty good hours actually over here. Um, the men's race. And this is just a testament to what is going on in the peloton right now. It's just like, how ridiculous was that race? The speed of it, you know, and Van Art and Jumbo going on Wallers, the sector before Arenberg, and just going like, like the finish, like the attack they did there was essentially like the attack you do on Carrefour de Labra. They were going for the finish 15k away. All right, let's go boys. Six, six of us. Let's, let's just go to the finish. 110k to go. Yep. Mitch, we've talked endlessly about this phenomenon over the last two or three years. Um, races sort of decanting earlier and becoming exciting earlier. And we've identified various factors or speculatively identified various factors that might be contributing to it. For example, the fact that races, whole races are televised now. The fact maybe that these attacks are informed by better knowledge of by the individual riders of what they can do, what they're capable of. I mean, precisely what you've just said there, really lighting the match before the Arenberg Forest. What's going on there? What's going on in the heads of Jumbo Visma? What are they thinking? What are they doing? 
The only thing I could think about was that they went into that sector um, and they wanted to get through... Well, look, Wallairs, it's an underrated sector, sector um, eight, sector sorry, 20, before Arenberg. Often there's a lot of crashes on that sector. And, you know, two times in my career, I was chasing... Well, two times that I vividly remember... One where I crashed and the other following year when I returned, the same thing happened. It was almost like deja vu. I was trying to get back to the peloton heading into Arenberg because there's always a crash on Wallace. So when I saw them doing that, I thought, yeah, okay, they're just getting a gap. They're keeping themselves safe. They're going over Arenberg. But clearly it wasn't that. They were going for the jugular. They were going for it. Um, they can go long now. Um it's just like I think for me, it really is the way that they race in cyclocross, having understanding cyclocross more. And we saw this. Remember when Van Art, sorry, Vanderpool won Amstel Gold Race, and he just took the bull by the horns. He was on the back foot, and he just took the bull by the horns. Didn't care who was in his wheel, and just we'd never seen this really in road cycling where no one even flicked an elbow, give me a turn. He's just like, I don't care. I am just going to try and get across to the front and win this race. And for me, that was so mind-blowing, that mentality. I hadn't seen it in road cycling where someone didn't flick the elbow, look behind, give me a turn, whatever. He was just like, I couldn't care. And that's what you see in cyclocross. These guys just go, I'm going across the front. I'm riding as hard as I can. If you're good enough to get around me, you do it. And that's the mentality these guys, I think, are brought in to road cycling, this Let's just go for the line. I've got the level. I know I've got the level. You guys, if you're better than us, you come around us. It's almost like refresh racing in a way. I don't know for the better. For the better, I'm glad I'm not there because it just looks like hell out there. But it's almost as though there's been a recognition, but not only on the part of these kind of galactic talents, but on the part of a lot of riders that you can sort of you can you can ride a, a big time trial in the middle of another race mm. and still be and kind of be okay. And I don't know whether it's I mean, we've talked about feeding as well. I think there have been advances in that respect as well that have maybe opened a lot of people's eyes to what is possible and how long they can sort of redline for. I don't know. I don't know. I, I think it's also, I, I honestly think a lot of it has got to do with mentality. Sure, the level and the, the feeding and the nutrition and the training's change, but it's the mentality. People are seeing that it's possible and the belief, you know, and that also defeats people behind. Oh, they're gone. We're never going to catch them. You know, whereas this before, that wasn't the mentality of racing. We didn't do things like that. You didn't go out there and just go on your own. Like, I remember when, like, you know, Nicky Terpstra did something like that early on. You're like, wow, how could he do that? You know, it was just so foreign, but it's becoming more and more common. People are doing this all the time. So it's less fear to just go and go out in the wind, go out with a couple of guys. You can do it. They're all strong enough. They've all got the numbers. Why not? In, especially in a race like Roubaix where the elements of guys working and swapping off and a big bunch pulling you back doesn't really happen in that kind of race. So being one out or in a couple of guys is almost just as good as a, being in a, a bunch of 20, you know. Is it also a case, though, that the race programs for the very top guys are now so specific, so kind of, you know, they know in advance what they're doing. It's not like... Um, you know, Van der Poel and Van Aert and co, they're not being told on the way to Paris-Roubaix, oh, by the way, you're doing Paris-Camembert next week, or even Amstel Gold, or, oh, you've got to go again another week, another week. It's they, The setup is, 
these are your objectives you can go and leave absolutely everything on the road for these key objectives because after after that you're mm. not going to be pressed back into action and we have seen even big name riders i'll just do another week you know especially back in the days of the world um, world cup leaders jersey someone who won paris roubaix would taking the lead jersey in the world cup classification would then have to go on and do the next week's race and it just strikes me you know we were talking with a slight air of disappointment in arrivé that we won't see van art and van der poel uh, against one another at Liège, Baston Liège, for example, but it does also strike that the other side of that coin is that when they're racing less often, you know, they're able to really empty the tank completely for these key um, objectives, which gives them yet another little advantage over the next tier of riders who may have, you know, ten percent more races days on their calendar. Look, I really do believe that that is true because you know it goes back to the old thing where we're arguing this, you know, the old training races they don't exist anymore and if we want to talk about the way i trained at the end of my career and i know guys are training like that now you are doing races in your training if that makes sense behind motorbikes things like that. you cannot afford to come to a race not at 100 you know i hate using that statistic sort of you know talk but you do you have to be ready like you just said this Everyone's got such a structured program. These, especially these top guys, they're picking their races. They're ready to go. When they hit the line, they're ready to go. People listening to this going, that doesn't make sense to me. Why wouldn't you just be ready at every single race there was? It was different. Like the mentality was different. You used a race to prep yourself to get better and you'd hit your goal. And like you said, you would try and hang on to that form for a bit longer and blah, blah, blah. Now it's just like, nah, get in, get out. I heard this story that I was speaking to Luke Durbridge. This is something that actually blew my mind. When guys aren't in form anymore, so Paris-Nice for an example. Paris-Nice was a race where you just hung on to try and finish just because of pride. Didn't matter if you were sick or you weren't going as good. You had to finish. You wanted to finish to say, yep, got that, got that notch on the belt. I'm going to the classics with Paris-Nice under my belt. But now guys, if they're not in form, will just simply pull out of the race, cut their losses and go, Get out, mate. You're not quite informed. You're not sick or anything. We can see you're not informed. Get out. Go home. Prepare. Be back at the next race. That it just that just didn't didn't happen. I'm talking only like two three years ago. So now the mentality is: if you're not quite at the level, why waste your time in this race? Get out. It's better for you to train where you can control everything and come back when you're ready. It seems like Mitch is taking a while for guys, even guys who have been in the peloton for a long time, to some of them to get their head around precisely what you're talking about. I mean, we had Joe Dombrowski and Larry Warbass together on the podcast a few weeks ago, and they sort of on the podcast live in real time had this debate about whether it's possible now to sort of stay in form, I suppose you would say, for the whole year. Stay pretty much, you know, between you use the... Um, the, the talks about percentages there but between nine, 98 and 100% the whole year and we are kind of seeing that but it is a it's a shift in mentality so for for several reasons i mean you know if you go back 15 years this whole idea of peaking two peaks a year it was also i think linked to the kind of choreography of doping to be honest um um well certainly back in the 90s but yeah it does seem that that has been uh there's been a big shift in mentalities about form peaks and them not really existing it's more a form plateau that lasts for several months of the year and mitch can i ask you a, a technical question if we zoom forward to the i suppose the key what well, it was the key moment of the men's race uh van art's getting dropped because he'd suffered a puncture on the car for the lab now i was curious about this i think philippe gilbert and Lequipe 
talked about how choosing the wrong line or lines generally could have been the cause of his puncture. I went back and, and watched Van Aert on the Carrefour uh, de Lab. He rode most of the time. He was sort of on the saddle in the middle of the road. There was a time, there were a few seconds where he swayed into the into the left gutter. But Van der Poel was pretty much riding the same line. But just generally, the association of punctures and the lines you take on the cobbles. Is it fair to make that connection? I would make that connection if he was in the dirt on the side. For sure, there's yeah, much which more was of a risk. For a few seconds. Yeah, yeah, there's much more of okay. a risk on the side, just because it's it's just more unreliable. You know, you could you could argue that, and I, I can only speak from Laporte and Van Aert both getting punches. You could mm. argue was their setup correct, whether that was tire pressure or whether it was tires. I don't know what tires they're riding now. I think they're riding Victoria. Um, yeah, we think they were riding the same as Van der Poel, we think. So he was could, riding 32s. I'm not sure about the width of Van Aert's, but I think they were Victoria's as well. It could come down to pressure. Um, look, a mm. lot of guys juggle the pressure of what is most optimum to carry them on the stones and what is most optimum to keep the rolling resistance on the road. And you're juggling. For me, for instance, I had a working roll, so I would ride a harder pressure which wouldn't be as comfortable on the cobblestones. But I ultimately, if I got dropped on the cobblestones, that wasn't the end of the world. My role was getting people into the cobblestones, chasing back on on the road. So I need a better rolling resistance on the road. A guy like Sebastian Langeveld would choose to ride a pressure that was lower, which would be more comfortable on the cobblestones, which would allow him to you know not lose a bike length to the big guys because he had to win. And he had guys like me put him in the position on the road. So my question would be, was their pressure correct for them on the day? There's also very difficult to test the pressure in recon opposed to racing. Recon, you choose your line and you're not going quite as fast and the pressure's not on and you're comfortable and you're choosing it and you can feel it. The pressure's on and, the, and you're trying to follow a wheel and you're on the limit that's when you find out what the correct pressure is. So, look, I'm only speculating what may have happened and that's only two two guys from the same team that received punches. So, um, it could be, once again, we all speak about Roubaix's all about luck. Maybe they just got drawn a bad luck card. Um, so, yeah. I mean, just generally after the weekend, there's been this sort of rush, this scramble, as there is after every classic now, to define Van Aert's performance through the lens of Van der Poel. And this is something that's really not serving him very well. I mean, we and we're as guilty of it as anyone. He's always spoken about in terms of the con- comparison with Van der Poel. I mean, Alex Rose, um, Alex Rose in uh, L'Equipe, he wrote at the weekend, will also retain the image of a gap opening between Van der Poel and Van Aert as they exited the Carrefour de l'Arbe before the right turn towards glory, which also plotted the path of their respective careers. The Dutchman's towards immortality with his four monument wins and the Belgians losing grip on the gravel, um, which is putting in very stark terms. But this is my my sort of main takeaway line from the weekend as I thought more about the race was how unfair this comparison is becoming. I saw a clip, Johan Brunil on another podcast, um, talking about how ultimately he thinks the bottom line is Van der Poel's just always been a bit more talented. Um, my the sort of caveat that comes into my head to that is that, you know, if I was Wout van Aert, I would... Maybe think a bit more about a sort of quality that we don't we don't 
describe, we don't class as talent, but one thing they might have over Van der Poel as the years go on is just this this kind of consistency and stoicism and reliability, which, um, you know, he hasn't suffered any injuries yet. And that, is, that could be the one question mark over Van der Poel. And he just needs to keep plugging away, doesn't he? I mean, he's always there. He's always available. He's robust. He's always fit. And who knows who's going to have the last laugh. Yeah, but the big question about Van der Poel and one that I wanted to ask Mitch was, uh, should he have been disqualified for the crash that uh, saw John Degenkolb hit the ground? We've had a few listeners ask us that question. Debbie Towis, I hope I pronounced that surname correctly, Debbie, uh, was the first to ask us by email. I've looked at this incident several times. Degenkolb's on the right-hand side of the road, in the dirt, as you'd say, Mitch. Uh, Jasper Philipson's a bit more towards the centre. Philipson, of course, Vanderpool's teammate. Vanderpool moves up just as Philipson moves across to the right, which basically squeezes Vanderpool and Degenkolb pays the price. I don't know what you think, Mitch. I mean, it would have been a harsh DQ, I would have thought, because Vanderpool didn't really do anything wrong. He was just riding in his space as Philipson moved across. And Degenkolb paid the unfortunate price. Yeah, it was really unfortunate. And actually, Degenkolb, to speak about him for a second... He was riding out of his skin. Um, uh, a performance I haven't seen since you know he won, you know the 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 Tour de France Roubaix. Um, I haven't seen him ride like that since years. Um, and a few times I did think that he was sort of, if you could say, lucky in the right position. But then he proved it a few times where he just rode around Philipson to get across to Vanderpool. And some amazing moves. So it was sort of sad that that didn't play out. I was probably more on the sad side. But in terms of fairness, it was just one of those freak situations where I don't think anyone was wrong. Philipson had no idea. He was literally moving. And Degenkob also had no idea what was going on. He was focusing on what he was doing. And Vanderpool was just literally trying to attack. And he's got his attack blocked. Um, I don't think anyone should have been DQ'd there. My ride of the day, it has to be mentioned, is Mads Pedersen. As the six took off, or however many it was on Wallairs, he was the guy who missed it. He took on the challenge to go across on Arenberg, which was which was epic in its own right. I was like, great, that's awesome. You try to get across. Amazing. He closed the gap. He came off Arenberg completely blown in the hole. And then those guys... The, f- the front guys who are strong start swapping off and he rides across after Arenberg. And I don't know if anyone saw this. He did the last minute after he'd been on his limit for probably like eight minutes. I'm going to get out of the seat here and sprint and close this last 100 meters. I can't tell you as a as a ex sort of pro being on that level and all that sort of stuff, what that was for him to get across that group. I was just like... For me, that was like almost winning a race. So him getting across that, closing that gap was so phenomenal to those those front guys, and him being in the front there, I was like, I I just actually thought he was he did his race winning move right there. There was nothing else he could do. He was buggered. That was amazing. That was an amazing ride early on, which set up the quality and the caliper of what that group was. Um, it just it was a, just some some really small snippets of that race opposed to the the winning moves and things like that there was some great stuff that happened during out the the race i think talking of defying expectations lionel there was a, a teenager riding paris bay at the weekend um the youngest rider at paris bay for uh, several decades he did make it to the velodrome 
on Sunday afternoon. He was outside the time limit. But a uh, noteworthy performance nonetheless, and I think you... Yeah, well, I was going to say, uh, there was quite a nice symmetry between the women's race and the men's race because Alison Jackson, Canadian rider, won the women's race on Saturday. Last rider on the official results, 135th, was Derek G, a Canadian rider with Israel Premier Tech, and he'd been in that early break, hadn't he? But he was 25 minutes 44 down. The time cut was not particularly generous because of the speed of the race. The first rider who reached the velodrome but was outside the time cut was Josh Tarling, the youngest rider at Paris Bay since 1937. And I spoke to him a couple of days after the race. How were the hands, wrists and elbows? Uh, uh, they're okay now. The hands are a bit, uh, bit cut up. Um, there's a few blisters, but uh, yeah, I think the main thing is, that, yeah, the wrists are quite uh, just stiff, you know. And he's... Um, these the roads around here are quite um they're big on concrete roads aren't they with the slabs so every there's a bump every 10 seconds and yeah yeah the wrists don't get much of a rest but they're they're all good was this morning the first ride you've done or did you go out just to spin the legs on the monday morning afterwards yeah yeah we did a spin just to uh just to kind of yeah try and loosen everything off i think um yeah, the legs were okay, but I think the uh, I think the ass could have done with a with a day off. I mean, you were riding the junior race last year and the year before, so you knew what the Pavel was about. But I mean, what was the gap like between the junior race experience and the full-on senior race? Uh yeah, I think with the the thing is with the pro races is it's actually a lot before the cobbles. The junior race is only maybe 20k and you go straight in because yeah in this is uh as long as you have i think it's i think it's about 95k or something like that before gobble so yeah for someone like like me whose job is to kind of mark mark the breaks and follow people and i don't know sometimes get in them it's uh yeah, it makes your job a lot harder because obviously in a, in a normal normal pro race you have maybe 60k of this um, where you just I don't know pull in or and then you let the brake go and then you control it for a bit but usually it's only for 60k because this is such a long race you end up doing 100k and then if you keep going you end up doing a few of the first early sectors so it, yeah your job's just a lot longer and a lot uh, and a lot harder than usual in his post-race press conference, Matty van der Poel said that basically they raced like juniors from start to finish. I'm not sure if you meant that as a compliment or not. Uh, I think he means just try and kill each other for the whole race. There's, uh, there's a lot of you know dive bombing and a lot of just full gas racing, you know, like because in this race, is you forget about the length of it. You just kind of, as Roubaix, you want to be in a break, but you want to show your face or you want to, yeah, everyone, like, just even little things like Instagram, everyone wants to lead Arenberg, you know? Some pro races can be controlled. UAE, for example, you let the boat go, sit there and race at the end. But with Roubaix, it's just such a prestigious thing to do anything in it, really. So everyone just is racing from the start. 
Now, you're the youngest rider to have done Paris-Roubaix since 1937. Is that something you knew before the start, or did you just find out afterwards? Uh, yeah, I saw it, and, and someone told me in in the media tent, and it's, it's pretty cool. I was, um, yeah, yeah, it's just cool, isn't it? <laughs> just cool, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, how did you feel in the morning before the start? I mean, yeah. You know, most riders, uh, you know, there's a sense of anticipation, but also the nerves of, of what awaits. Um, yeah. I mean, to you, being so so new to all of this, how did you feel? I wasn't too bad because I think, like, I get treated like an adult here, like, like properly. And, like, yeah, you have people like Luke, who's just done it, like, a million times, and you know, so... So, so like in tune with it and they know what to do. It almost takes your nerves away because they tell you what to do and you do it, you know, because I'm treated like an adult. I get like a job to do. And uh, I like to like that, you know, like I get a job and like, then I know what I'm doing. Like I can do it. But if it's just like a sit in and try and learn, I'll end up messing that up or, you know, getting in the way. So yeah, it was. Yeah, being surrounded by people like Luke and Ian, who was at DS, and Roger also, we've both podiumed in it, and um, Luke, who's crazy, crazy good at it, and Gano's just got the legs to, to be honest, even if you do mess it up, you can sort it out. It kind of takes all the nerves, or some of the nerves away, you know? So tell me about the, the, the big incident from your race, and the everybody, everyone had a kind of battle story don't they by the time they get to the, to the finish but what would your first sector was up there with the team and then did the in between the first sector and the second sector and then the second just to keep the team up there and out of the way you know because there was crashes quite high up the bunch with Sagan going down about 20th wheel so this was quite good to keep kind of out of that and then there's like an off off cambo right hander you just come off the cobbles and it was a bit um Bit dusty, slid slid out really. There's a, I think there's a drain on the in, on the inside. So, yeah, unfortunately, just clipped that and then lost the front. Then I did actually, I managed to get back on a few, like, I think three sectors before Arenberg, back to the front group with with Mohoric and Asgreen. Yeah, I moved up to the to our guys, and then it was uh, Arenberg then. So, yeah, everything. Everything kind of exploded on Arenberg. Was in was in the was in the group there, and then was with Luke and Worthy, and then punctured. So then I was there was no cars, um, so I just had to stand on the road waiting for few, like three or four minutes. Really, there was no one around. Luckily, a cop for this car stopped, which was going the other way. Gave me a wheel so I could at least finish, but then it was a long day then because I I didn't have a choice. I was on my own because there was uh, with the puncture, all the groups just gone up the road, so I was just stood there waiting. It's kind of it's tricky as well because it's point to point. There's no obviously I was going to finish, but as in like if you wanted to, uh, like go straight to the finish, you can't because it's basically one way. So and it's with me, so everyone wants to finish. So it's just on my own just. Cracking on, really. 
and it's one of those things, isn't it? It's the only race that any people will go through absolutely anything to reach that velodrome in Roubaix, even though you must have known you'd be outside the time limit, I guess. Yeah, yeah. It was just to say you've completed it, isn't it? Like, especially when you have a grim day like that, it's always, it's always worth finishing just to for the stories and stuff. And I mean, what was the experience like when you came into the into the velodrome in Roubaix? You can obviously, you know. The, the race is finished and there's all that mayhem, the journalists are in the track centre yeah. and the riders are everywhere. Um, you know, what were you looking out for? You had family there in the velodrome at the finish? Yeah, yeah, so I was just looking out for them. I, there was a lot of, I had a lot of cameras and uh, interviews to do at the finish. Um, yeah, I was just trying to find my family, really. And uh, yeah, then, then you have to do all the all the media stuff and then you go go out with the fellow and yeah, give you give your bottles away, give your gloves away, and then go see the family, you know. And did you pay a visit to the showers? I didn't, I didn't actually. I was there. Uh, just, I spent a lot of day on my own, so I just want to go in the bus with the dudes and have a shower. Nice warm one in the bus. And and lastly, that's the kind of the cobbled classics block and uh, your first few months of the pro. What comes next for you? I did the Ardennes now. So I have um, here to do Brabant tomorrow, and then I do. I'm still in flesh, but first thing after the after the these is go home to Andorra and just get some good training blocks in, and yeah, kind of get into the routine again, and then hit hit whatever races I have then. Quite hard, you know. Now, Josh Tarling is 19 years old. His teammate, Cameron Worth, is 39, a whole 20 years older. And Cameron Worth finished 128th in a group just uh, almost 23 minutes down. You'd think that would be enough. But he then went for a 21-kilometre run after Paris-Roubaix. Now, when I first saw this, I thought it must be a joke. But you two are both, uh, well, good runners, aren't you? Mitch, we ran round the Paris at uh, the Tour de France last year, if you remember. And uh, I'm still sticking to my excuse that I had the wrong trainers on. I uh, couldn't keep up with you. But, I mean, what's going through his mind there, doing a 21-kilometre, 86-minute run after Paris-Roubaix? I think it's about him. I remember hearing this um, either... I can't remember talking to him or someone. His trainer's all about him running or training on fatigue. But this is just taking it to the next level, isn't it? You know, you just, you've got Roubaix fatigue. It's not just physical fatigue from doing a six-hour ride or a six-hour hard race. It's, this is Roubaix fatigue. And I can't explain this to anyone what that is. It's a full body fatigue. It's a mental fatigue. It's everything. Uh, I think it's got to be an element of just what we're talking about. It. I think there's an element of that. Not just training and doing it quietly. People know about it. There's an element of, hey, I'm going to do this because there's going to be an epic story. I think the most impressive aspect for me is is the fact that Ineos Grenadiers still think, I mean, they're not picking him just as a sort of circus act, as a novelty act because he has got this great story behind him. But they obviously think and, well, they obviously know he can do a job for the team in Paris Bay. And he's managing... He's managing to do that at a pretty advanced age. And also, I know that they also, they're using him as a bit of a guinea pig. I know that they've got quite a lot of useful information um, from him and from the various feats he's accomplished in triathlon and cycling over the last two or three years. So that might be a part of it as well. 
The Cycling Podcast is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Amsel Gold Race is, is pretty much, you know, one of the highest, you know, TSS that yeah. I, you know, noticed in, in my entire career. So basically it demands, you know, massive amount of glycogen stores in, yeah. in your muscle, which it makes it tricky the day before because on, on the end of the day, you just can't have it, you know, three pizzas, let's say, <laughs> uh, the night before. It, you just have to plan it well, your fueling, uh, not the day before, even even earlier. You, you just have to be ready. Your gut has to be ready, you know, your stomach has to be ready to just absorb all the glycogen, all the, all the energy to use it on the day of the event. You cannot overdo it. And I see it with the young guys, you know, most of the time they're doing, you know, Milano San Remo the night before. They just, you know, they, they overdo it. You know, yeah. they, they think 300 kilometer race or even before Amsterdam, it, it's a massive event, but you have to know your body. It's, it's always individual. Yeah, and, and Amsterdam on the day of the event, you know that, you know, your pockets are basically full. Yeah. You know, even, you know, we have better fuel and, you know, each single jelly or bar or whatever we have is full on energy, but you still have, you know, full pockets of, because you go into the war. This is Michal Kwiatkowski of Ineos Grenadiers, a two-time winner of the Amstel Gold Race and the defending champion, of course, talking about how putting together an effective fueling strategy requires experience too. You have to know what your body can take. You have to get your stomach ready to absorb all of the energy needed for the race and science in sports specific products help to do that. Science in Sport has everything you need for your event. Go to scienceinsport.com. I learned a lot since uh, since the beginning of the year. I think I start more tracking my you know, carbohydrate intakes, even on training and, and races in particular, which is not easy because you know when when you're racing for six hours and you know there's plenty of attacks and everything you yeah. know um, not necessarily going right. On the end of the day, you still have to remember what you what you hand on the bike that then it, it makes it difficult. But uh, I. I had around, you know, 100, 120 grams yeah. per hour on, on the entire day, which, you know, obviously the, the plan always is to target those 100, 120 grams of carbohydrates in the end of the event when, when it's demanding. But I'm still got race, as I said, it's from start to the finish. So you basically, you need to be ready to, to just eat um, from the start. Yeah. Well, chaps, we've discussed Paris-Roubaix, moving countries, moving terrain. Um, we'll shift our focus now to the tour of the Basque country. Um, Jumbo Visma, well, they came away empty-handed in Paris-Roubaix, didn't they? But that was not the case in the tour of the Basque country. And we saw a bit of a continuation of a theme um, that has played out throughout the start of this 2023 season. Well, one of the themes is Jonas Vingegaard being on pretty prolific form with the exception of... Paris-Nice, which of course uh, Tadej Pogacar won, got the up hand there. But Lionel, I make it the Jumbo Visma have now won 24 races this year. Vingegaard won three stages and the overall Tour of the Basque Country. But they're not the only team that's been well dominating at the start of the year, are they? No, I think just totting up race wins tells a story one way. But actually, when you crunch the numbers, as I've done, and look at it in terms of percentages, it really conveys just how much... 
these four teams and, and kind of five or six riders are absolutely dominant. They're winning almost everything. So this year in the World Tour, there have been 10 one-day races. Jumbo Visma have won four of them, 40%. Alpecin de Koenig have won 30%. There have been six stage races. Jumbo Visma have won half of them. And uh, there have been 40 individual stages and Jumbo Visma have won 11 of them. That's 27.5%. So when you add up all of the races in the World Tour this year, there's been 56 uh, races that can be won, whether that's a one-day race, a GC title or a stage. Jumbo Visma have won 32.1% of all the World Tour races. That's a third of the races. Then you've got UAE and Sudal Quickstep, who have each won 14% of the races. And then Alperson de Koenig have won 12.5%. Add all that together, and 72.6% of all of the races have been won, shared between those four teams. So three quarters of the races, more or less, have been won by four of the teams and everyone else is uh, fighting for the scraps really and I think this tells us the, the way the World Tour has evolved and the, the concentration of race winning power but also the way that they're racing to win on multiple different fronts and we kind of joked a bit about Sudal Quickstep a very disappointing cobbled classics campaign uh, by their usual standards Patrick Lefebvre cutting a slightly uh, forlorn figure uh, when I saw him at the weekend but their focus has shifted behind Remco Evnepoel and they have been hoovering up other race wins with, with other riders. And I mean, Mitch, you know, traditionally uh, the, the, the smaller teams would often have more of a shout of winning some of the spoils, wouldn't they? I mean, can you put yourself in the position of some of those teams that are currently, where are we, mid-April, and they've got one or two World Tour wins to their name so far? I mean, notable exception your old team, EF Education, Easy Post, they've actually done really well in non-World Tour races, uh, but only have one uh, World Tour win to their name. And that was a, the very first one, wasn't it? Alberto Betiol at the Tour Down Under. But all of these other teams must be wondering what they have to do to get on the top step of the podium. Oh, it's like, let's just take Yumbo Visma for an example. Um, it's... The dominance, look, I know they didn't really finish off, but they up until, um, you know, the Tour of Flanders, it was just so dominant on the cobblestones there by them. Um, not only with the wins, but just, you know, one-twos and just the way they raced it. And then you look at the Basque Country on the other end, you know, the, the stage race side, um, just the dominance there. It's just a all-round team. I don't think we used to really see this, um, you know, back in the day you know US Postal they were focused on the Grand Tours you know and that was their thing and then Quickstep were focused on the Classics they were a Classic squad it was very one or the other um, to master both it's yeah like you said you leave the other teams are just sort of left going Jesus how do we do this well, how do we sort of attack this you know um do we just go all in on one area, the classics, and just try and beat the best at, at, at one thing? Or do we try and split the team down the middle and, you know, get the sort of the crumbs, like you said? Um, it's it's really interesting. And it'd be great to see what's going on behind, um, you know, Yumbo Visma's doors there and how they're doing it and the training and their attack. And I, I'm super interested what's going on behind, you know, Yumbo Visma and how they're doing that and, um, how they're turning riders like you know Chris Laporte into this 
this amazing rider he is now um, and that he had that in him before. Is it mentality? Is it training? Is it the combination of both? Surely it's got to be the combination of both um, because, yeah, I just, I love seeing that transformation. He's just become this, you know, force to be reckoned with and yet I didn't really know about him when he was, you know, in Cofidus before. It was just a name on the paper. So I, I sort of love that. I know I'm drifting off of what you asked, but... Um, it really is um, awesome to see viewing. Let me just remind you that. It's awesome to see from the TV, from my couch with a beer in the hand. I would be getting so frustrated as a pro as I'd be getting dropped on every moment of the race. It's just got, got me thinking as well, chaps, when we look at those riders that dominated at the weekend, dominated the the, the news agenda as well, Vingegaard, Van Aert, Van der Poel, and then if you had Pogacar in as well. How also brusque the changing of the guard in this sport has been? And it kind of coincides with COVID, really. But also, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about Sagan. In my mind, when Sagan sort of exited stage and Van Aert entered it, it was around about the point, I remember the Dauphiné in 2019, where Van Aert um, won two or three stages for Jumbo Visma, and then they changed their plans and they sent him to the Tour de France, and he was a big factor at the Tour. But if you think about sort of 2019, the, the names, the big names in the sport, the big forces were Froome, Quintana, Sagan, um, you know, all people who in a very short space of time have become almost irrelevant, certainly at the at the top end of the sport and um, we've got these four that sort of emerged almost together we thought Bernal was was here to stay and was going to win five or however many tours to France but actually you know Jonas Vingegaard no one had heard of in 2020 but within a few months it was Vingegaard it was Pogacar and then Van Aert and and Van der Poel really shifting their focus to to the road and um and yeah and they're the sort of crowned heads now aren't they but you know the Basque country Mitch you know talking about races getting faster and faster Vingegaard supposedly produced his best ever power over um what was 16 minutes um you know I, how much of a shot across Tadej Pogacar's bows was his performance at the Basque country and did you, did you read much into it in terms of um the next two or three months mm, look I, it was unbelievably impressive um it's it was i didn't expect to see him dominating so much there and even if you look at the last stage just going solo and just going for it um not a way we saw him really racing up until now um you know it was, and you know, look, for me, Lander showed quite a lot of promise. Um, just the only guy who could sort of match him. And, you know, match him, I mean, following his wake for a little bit. Um, so that was promising to see that he's sort of got some, some, some fire as well, looking to, you know, be, could be another guy up there. You don't want to just be, see this, you know, as a, as a fan, you don't want to see just this dominant force from day one of the tour and you're like, oh, okay, it's over. Boring, you know? Um, but in saying that, it was it was unbelievably impressive. And again, as uh, to bring in my writing side of this, never ridden, ridden Basque, watching it on TV and just the word in the peloton, that is the hardest stage race of the year. Terrain-wise and the way it's raced, undoubtedly, any rider you speak to, that is the hardest like one-week stage race there is. So... To see him just sort of taking the piss there, 
just sort of puts it all in perspective as well. And that race would have been absolute hell. I can guarantee you that. Mitch, short answer. Where is your weather vane pointing at the moment as far as the tour is concerned? Is it in the direction of Vingegaard or Pogacar? Vingegaard. I think he's just taking a much more um, tour approach. Um, Pogacar just sort of jumping around, doing, you know, all these other races, you know, it's it's interesting to see him doing it. Mm. But I think, you know, the focus for the tour needs the focus around the tour. Um, I feel like Vingegaard's taken the the right trajectory in my mind, you know, the, the correct steps, Basque, and then, you know, I'm sure he's going to take a spell and then prepare for the tour. I like the way he's doing it. The form he showed there was just super dominant. He's in the right spot. I'm I'm going to put all my money on him. Well, chaps, the transition from part two of the podcast, Paris Bay, to part three, Tour of the Basque Country, sort of foreshadows another transition. We're going to start talking about the Hillier Classics now, which we've got coming up. We've got Amstel Gold at the weekend. Now, I teased this, I think, in part one. I said that I was going to ask Mitch, who is a known beer connoisseur, um, for his thoughts before we talk about the race, Amstel Gold, what's your thought? What are your thoughts on the beer, Amstel Gold, um, Mitch? Um, don't, maybe Dutch beer in general, because I find Dutch beer in general mystifyingly underwhelming, considering where it is. Look, I'm not a massive Amstel drinker. Um, look, if that's all there is to drink, of course I'll drink it. But when it comes to Dutch beer, I do love a Grolsch, um, pronounced Holsch, apparently. Um, and I got into that because I lived in the area of, of Grolsch, um, sort of in the northeast of Holland. That's where they drink it. If you're in that area, you've got to drink Grolsch. You don't drink Heineken. If you're over in Amsterdam area, you drink Heineken. If you're down south, you drink Amstel. Very, very specific about that. The Grolschies, I love them because they've got the swing top. You pop them open. It's quite a nice feeling. They're sort of, um, I think they're half a liter i can't remember exactly but the best thing about drinking a grolsch is you go to the cinema in holland you can take a couple of grolschies in watch the movie and they do an intermission i love this it's an obligatory intermission they stop the film for five minutes in the middle of the film you go out re-get two more grolschies go in there pop them open in a quiet scene in the film just to let everyone know you're having your second one and you get to watch the rest of the film i love grolsch um that's my favorite dutch beer can we have a tangential uh, connection that sort of comes back to cycling between Grolsch? Daniel, you're probably too young to remember the craze in the 1980s when the pop du- uh, band Bros, which was some brothers, uh, they took the bottle tops off the Grolsch bottles and then put them through the lace holes of their Dr. Martin's boots as a bit of a kind of, I don't know, a bit like uh, how, um, who was it? Was it Public Enemy who had the the, the the VW um, car badges on chains. Uh, anyway, it was similar to that. And so, you know, kids at school, at my school, were wearing these uh, bottle tops, beer bottle tops on their shoelaces. Bros, as I said, Matt and Luke Goss, uh, not the same Matt Goss that won Milan San Remo in 2011. It's different Matt Goss. But there we are. We're back to cycling. Just about, just about. Now, Mitch, can you talk to us as much about Amstel Gold the race as you have just t- talked about Amstel Gold the beer? Because I, I see your experience of Amstel Gold is not extensive, but there is some. Mm. It's it's a funny thing, Amstel, because, look, I was living in the area where 
Amsfield passes by. I live right near the three point zone, um, which is in Vals. I lived in the, the the Belgian part, but you got Germany right there, you got Holland right there. So I trained a lot in the area. And in that particular year, I had a great Roubaix. I finished 15th and the team said, Mitch, you're in good form. Let's send you to Amsfield, you know, like pretty much like the Prairie Cabin Bear story. So you're like, oh, break one more week, you know, let's stretch you on. So I didn't want to be there. But the, the thing I noticed straight away on the start line or actually in the first few kilometers is, so in the Cobble Classics is everyone sort of grows tired together because it's the same guys more or less. And everyone sort of gets their spot in the peloton. There's an element of respect. I use that word very loosely. But if you're going like crap, you're not getting up there right before the Quarimont and getting everyone's way on Flanders. You're getting the hell out of there. Everyone knows that. Suddenly you get to Amstel and you're this old tired guy from doing all these cobblestone races and you get the fresh blood in. And these guys are chomping at the bit. It's like being at... Um, well, Warrigam used to be the first, you know, Duas de Flandern used to be the first cobblestone classic the Wednesday after San Remo. It's like being back at Warrigam or De Punna now, which is there, and everyone's coming in old and salty, and you're so there's sort of like a sprinkling of cobblestone guys through there, and you look across at each other during the race and going, we shouldn't be here. This is just hell. And these guys who have been, you know, these climbers who have just come out of Basque, they're ready, they're in, you know, they're, they're in their classics, they're fresh, they're motivated, and they're just annoying. So that was the hardest thing I couldn't get my head around. Of course, the hills were hard too. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky, it's a very tricky race. It's, it's very hard. But the thing, I think the biggest thing was the mentality. And kind of unique as well, Mitch. I mean, it's grouped, it's sort of arbitrarily grouped with the Ardennes Classics. But I always say that it's underappreciated, I think, how different Amstel Gold is from most other races, if not every other race on the calendar, in the sense that there aren't that many other races with 30 hills on them. 30, you know, hills of, of decent distance. The biggest thing with Amstel is, as with, you know, I'm going to say all the classics, I haven't ridden Flesh or Liège, but... I can only speak about the cobblestone races and this, is that you have to know the parkour. You have to. This one more so than uh, as 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 much as the Flandern races because having lived in that area, you know how to move and you know where to be and you know how to drift and these roads are so, so small that you just, you're just on the back foot if you're just not in the right position. Position, position, position. You know, you're going to hear that from a DS. Sound like a DS now. But that is all Amsel is. You've got to have the legs on the climbs, of course. But if you're just not there, there's just nothing you can do about it. You just continue on the back foot. You really need to know the roads down there. Um, Amsel is such a tricky race with that. And you feel like you are lost down there it took me you know i was living down there for three years it took me three years to work out where i was just training down there let alone going down there and racing it's so confusing looking ahead to the weekend we've got that sort of influx of new blood that you talked about some of the riders well, who haven't been doing the cobble classics we've got riders like tom pidcock who did a, a section of the earlier classics but he's coming back in ala philippe we know is out he would ordinarily be a favorite for amstel gold but he's still suffering after his crash in when was it when did he crash he had a crash in flanders in flanders wasn't it um and we've got defending champion Mikhail Kwiatkowski, Michael Matthews, rider who's usually gone well, 
in Amstel. But how do you think Pog will fare, Mitch? Just bearing in mind what you just said, having not done it before, but being someone, I remember a couple of weeks ago, one of his direct sportifs, I think it was Machin, said that with him, all the, the dogmas about needing to know the route and know the roads, they don't really apply with him because he's so comfortable finding his way to the front of, the, of a peloton. <laughs> is it? Is it... Yeah, look, I'm not disregarding his ability to ride through a peloton at all, but is it that or is it just the combination that he literally can step out and ride around 20 guys on a climb when he needs to? Um, that is something that not a lot of guys can do. Um, and if they do do that, that's their race-winning move right there. Um, going, yep, I'm just doing my, uh, my, my shoot to the line just to get to 10th position and that's my race, you know, mid-race. So that's something he has up his sleeve is that ability to get himself self out of bad positions with his physical ability. Um, but he also, you know, not having raced toe-to-toe with him ever and not noticing his bike handling skills. His bike handling skills in the bunch may be um, very good also and he may be able to slip through the bunch, you know, without riding out on the side as well. Talking of well, bike handling skills and being able to sort of ride through a peloton like a, a knife through butter, that was one thing that people used to say about Peter Sagan, but it's kind of curious that he never won Amstel Gold, um, bearing in mind his sort of characteristics in his pomp. Um, well, that's the weekend Amstel Gold. Is it, I never know. Is it Saturday or Sunday without looking? Amstel Gold. I feel like it, once upon a time it was Saturday and then it moved to Sunday. Am I it right? It used to be on a Saturday, but it's on Sunday this year. It's on Sunday. That is on Sunday, and we've got Fleshwell on next Wednesday. We're going to have an Arrive after Fleshwell on the women's race as well, Lionel, I believe. Um, Mitch, before we leave you, we should just ask you. I know you still you're still in recovery mode after. Uh, your big objective of the spring, if we can call it an objective, um, Cape Epic, which you did, the mountain bike race with another good friend of ours, Ian Boswell. Just tell us, how are you, first of all? How's the health? Yeah, it was it was a tough one. Um, you know, South Africa being um, not a, you know, not as, um, what's the right word here? It's, it's, it's rustic, you know, you're out there in the wilderness. So, um, I wasn't used to the bacterias and stuff there. And I think a lot of people, that's something you underestimate. There's this, there's this sort of talk about you get in, you know, the Cape Epic, there's 1500 people there. It's all, you know, everyone using the same, you know, food to serve there at the tent food hall to use the same serving and all this sort of stuff. I don't think it is that. I don't think it's food poisoning or I think it's just the bacteria of the country getting used to it. You're not used to that. Um, and I, I definitely, I, I copped it day two, um, and actually copped it for two weeks or two and a half weeks since I got it. Um, ended up finding out that I did have a parasite, which I'm sort of dealing with now. Um, not a nice experience, but the race itself, the race itself is very tough. Um, both Ian and I looked across at each other sort of four days into it and went, yeah, um, <laughs> this is sort of what we retired for, isn't it? So it is It is a race in in all sense because it is, you know, you've got to get up in the morning, you're feeling fatigued, you've got to hit that start line, you, everyone takes off, there is a sprint at the start and whether you want to race or not, you sort of get caught up in it. And at the end of the day, as Ian said, you know, um, we're competitors and it's very difficult for us just to cruise through things when people start riding past you and you just get that little itch. I'm better than that guy. I can beat him. Let's go, Ian, you know, and 
I, I had so much fun riding with Ian because it just brought me back to what we both have done as our profession mm. for so long is racing. And we both knew things without saying it. We did this unorchestrated attack. I don't even know how it happened, but we're in this front group and I just got a little bit of a gap and I pushed on and I knew Ian would catch me. He literally stepped out, attacked the guys, got across to me and he goes, I'm here, Mitch, let's go. And that was it. We did the next 60K, which was like three hours swapping off. Nothing else said. I sort of loved it that we just had this unspoken race tactics um so there was there's some cool elements but don't get me wrong if anyone's listening to this you've got to be ready for a really really hard week um it's definitely something you can't go to under prepared sounds like a one and done and you can hear all all about it mitch on your podcast well you made a fantastic podcast with ian which documents the whole experience the parasites the itches the parasite related itches the itches to attack the itches never to do the cape epic again and you can hear about it on your podcast. Definitely, yeah. Get across and listen to that. Um, Ian's also done his own version over at Breakfast with Boz, which is really nice too because when you're doing the interviewing, um, you don't really get to say what you want to say, which is fine for me, but actually Ian asks the questions back to me and that's sort of the flip side back on his podcast. So um, it was fun for me to listen to his as well and I'm sure he enjoyed listening to mine. There's some great characters on there. We list, We talked to... In the hospital, talk about all the stuff that happens there. Different people who are in tents. I feel so sorry for them. We're in campers. It's, it's, I try and give the whole feel of the race and the, um, the atmosphere apart from our moaning and groaning as well. well. I know. I think that concludes the entertainment. It does it? indeed. I'm just a bit worried that, uh, well, we hopefully won't be struck down by parasites uh, or any kind of unpleasant gastroenteritis when we're, uh, well, we're hopefully going to be back together at the Tour de France, Mitch. You've been you've been you've been struck down by gastronomy a few times <laughs> at the Tour de France. Yeah. <laughs> That's much more enjoyable. Yes. Well, hopefully we'll be struck down by gastronomy for a, a week or so at the Tour de France, Mitch. Yeah, we don't have to worry about you know um, parasites and things like that because we've we've got the um, we've got plenty of um, alcohol flowing through the veins to sort of make sure we're all clean and um, everything's killed and out of the way, don't we, Lionel? <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And on that note, thank you, chaps. Thank you. Thank you, Mitch. Yeah, thanks Thanks for having me, guys. Always a pleasure to be here. I really enjoyed it. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Free, and Lionel Burnett.